We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Secrets and Spies present Espresso Martini. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to our fourth episode of Espresso Martini and our first podcast of 2023. Matt, thank you for joining me. How are you doing and how was your Christmas? I'm good. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, good to be back. Uh, Christmas was, holidays were, were, were nice. You know, I feel like that, uh, that, that, that week between Christmas and New Year's, I sort of traditionally just sort of rot on the couch for a week, which is kind of welcome yes. in its own way. But I, I got, I got a little bit of writing done over the last couple of days. So that was, that was nice. Oh, excellent. You work on anything exciting at the moment or? Uh, the last few days I was working on the um, sequel to Active Measures. So Active Measures part part two. Um, it's still an, an insanely large book. Uh, and there's still a lot more to do, but it was it was good to be back into that world for yeah. a bit. Brilliant. I might have to consult you later in the year. I'm uh, I'm just embarking on a new spy project of my own that's um, actually about spy swaps. I won't go too much okay. into detail at the moment, but it's a very timely but involving spy swapping and uh, and a whole build up to that. So uh, that's one of my uh, side projects for the year to be playing around with. Um, I use um, I don't know how you do writing, but I've I developed this technique via my producer, the dry cleaner, actually, where um, we use trello um to sort of map out the the kind of key points of each scene and stuff like that so i'm kind of in that process at the moment it's what really do you interesting use kind of doing it that way it's an app called trello which is a trello. bit like um yes yeah, so it's a bit like index cards but a digital one Oh, okay. And so if you're sometimes collaborating with people, it's quite helpful. But it's really nice to use because um, when you – I wrote a script a couple of years ago where I, I used Trello quite extensively for it, and it just made life really easy to keep track of where I was in the story and what I was trying to do and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I highly recommend Trello if you've not used it. It's really good. Yeah, I have a few – for the novel, I have a few apps that I use. So the manuscript i just write like just the raw manuscript i i write that in word i'm pretty boring in that yeah. way um and then the sort of outline and the processing and stuff of the manuscript that's sort of fed through scrivener in a weird kind of roundabout way that i do things yeah and those are sort of the two big apps i use but a lot of with the novel a lot of it's still pretty analog i mean it's like moleskins and various legal pads and i have a whiteboard and a corkboard right here that mm. i uh like to you know break out onto when i can um my process has always sort of been in in flux which is maybe one of the reasons why i'm so slow but i'm not a big i'm also not a big outliner which is a, i mean that's a, that's a yeah. you can do a whole episode just on that but uh <laughs> yeah totally, yeah totally. yeah what I think the analog with digital is quite helpful. I find the only thing I found, the reason why I've sort of tried to digitalize some of what I did in an analog way before, was it just it saves time. Um, because then I, I used to find I used to write endless notes, notepads, that I'd have to then sit and rewrite them, right. which wasn't bad from an editing point of view, but at the same time, it was quite time consuming. So I love the notes app on my iPhone because um, it's with me everywhere and I get moments of crazy inspiration. I've written dialogue on buses and yeah. what have you, and just where it sort of hits me, I thought, oh, that sounds good. And then, and then you know, sometimes it still is good when you read it again later but you know yeah. one can only hope <laughs> well best of luck with all that so um on today's show we're going to look at two key stories from sort of december uh, what's december sorry we're going to look at two key stories from december um with a little bit of january bleeding in december was yet again a jam-packed month of espionage terrorism geopolitics and intrigue which is our business so just to summarize a, a few key events before we go into the two stories we're going to cover we had american basketball star Brittany grinner who was imprisoned in russia was then 
swapped with international arms dealer Victor Belt. We had members of the far right in the US who've been attacking power grids. We've had clergymen of the Russian Orthodox Church being accused of being spies for Russia and much, much more. So it was a very busy month. Now we've I think done our best to pick out two very interesting topics. So today we're going to look at a coup plot in Germany that was discovered. And then we're going to talk a bit about the COVID surge in China and the international and personal anxieties, speaking for myself, around all that. So, Matt, we'll kick off with the coup in Germany. So, on the 6th of December, there were a series of police raids across Germany. 25 people were originally arrested in raids on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. The raids took place in Germany, Austria and Italy, and they involved up to 5,000 officers searching 150 properties linked to this plot. After the initial raids, there was further raids that led to another 29 people being arrested, putting the total number of arrests to 54. Weapons were found at more than 50 locations, including firearms and ammunition. In Germany, it was the elite police unit, the GSG-9, who led the raids, and the plotters had been subjects of lengthy surveillance conducted by the German Federal Police, known as the BKA. Interestingly, from what I can see, no military connection to this um, operation, but we'll come to that maybe a bit later. The individuals arrested were part of a group that calls itself the Patriotic Union, which has an inner circle known as the Council, which sounds quite ominous, doesn't it? Um, And the plotters wanted to eliminate the free democratic basic order. And to achieve this, they were going to attack politicians, storm government buildings, and overthrow the federal government and dissolve the judiciary and usurp the military. The leader was a man who is known as Heinrich XIII, and he's from an old aristocratic family, and he was alleged to be the leader of the group and central to its plan. Heinrich styles himself as a prince from an old noble family known as the House of Rus, which ruled parts of the German eastern state Thuringia until 1918. And Thuringia apparently is very good for hiking. So if you're into hiking, there's a good place to go to in Germany. Um, (laughs) Now, uh, apparently Heinrich was ostracized from his family many years ago due to his conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic views. He became a less popular member of the family at gatherings because of that. Um, There are 30 members of the Roos family and all, all the male members are called Heinrich with a number after their name. So Heinrich 13 was nicknamed racing Heinrich due to his love of fast cars and women. Apparently he had grown into being a bit of a bitter man. He has a severely ill daughter, he has business troubles, and he's been involved in a large number of unsuccessful court cases in which he attempted to reclaim aristocratic families that were taken by communists after World War II. He blames the German authorities for his legal failures. Now, some of his fellow plotters are quite interesting. So the first one was his younger Russian ex-girlfriend. So when I hear Russian ex-girlfriend, immediately my suspicions pop out which uh, is good or bad depending on how you look at these things but uh, her name was well she's been publicly named as Vitalia B I'm assuming that her name is a bit more than Vitalia B she stands accused of trying to get Kremlin support for the plot allegedly she helped Heinrich secure interim financing via three Russian individuals who have not been publicly named as far as I can tell Russia has officially denied any involvement in the plot, but Russia has been previously linked to financing anti-government and far-right groups across Europe for more than a decade. So for me, that denial does not hold a lot of water. But looking at the known facts of the case, there is no clear direct Kremlin connection beyond Vesalia's attempts at getting Kremlin support. Interestingly, one of the group's first objectives once in power was to establish formal relations with Russia, so there definitely was a bit of an obsession with Russia within the group. Additional plotters include uh, former judge Birgit Malsevac-Thinkman, there was a celebrity gourmet chef called Frank Hapner, so definitely there was going to be some good cooking in this group. Uh, we had several members of the German Special Forces KSK, and their barracks were searched by police, which is pretty significant. It's a bit like having members of the SAS investigated. We also had QAnon members and members of a far-right group called Reichsburger, which stands for Citizens of the Reich. 
and they have been responsible for violence and conspiracy theories of a racist and anti-Semitic nature. Just a quick thing about the Reichsberger movement, and then I'll come over to you, Matt. The Reichsberger movement reject modern democracy and refuse to pay taxes. In 2021, it was believed that there were 21,000 members, uh, but it is believed that the group's numbers have grown significantly since 2021. 10% of the group are thought to be violent. The movement believes that the modern German state is a fake, and they believe it's actually a private company founded in 1949 by the Allies. In a similar belief to US sovereign citizens, they do not respect or believe the powers of the federal government. Instead, they only believe in the German Reich, which they believe still exists, but is without any institutions. Many members of this group are former police officers, members of the military and state servants, as well as German aristocrats such as Heinrich the 13th. BFD intelligence chief Thomas Haldenwang, and I hope I got that right, said that they were once seen as harmless cranks, but they now pose a high level of danger. So they are an interesting bunch, and they're not too dissimilar to maybe the um, kind of the broad spectrum or broad church of the people behind the January 6th United States Capitol attack in 2021. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on, on this plot? Because it's a very interesting one, and I hope, I hope it's still interesting after me describing it for about <laughs> 10 minutes. Yeah, I, this story is so odd and, and, and so interesting. I mean, it, it has those kind of echoes to spy fiction in real life, which is why, you know, mm. I saw it as like, we, we got to talk about this um, and like yeah. really give some time to like dig into it. It's just so, it's so weird. I mean, it's, it's um, I think it's very much of a, a, this Reichsberger Reichsberger movement. It's very mm. much of a kind of conspiracy culture, that you see on the far right and the extreme fringes of the right mm -hmm. post COVID, you know, that, that it's, it's, I mean, it, it's not so much your classical neo-Nazi ideology. I mean, so this, this Prince Heinrich the 13th, his, his family for hundreds of years before world war one ruled the, mm -hmm. uh, Thuringia province in, in Eastern mm -hmm. Germany um, obviously the German nobility was wiped out with the white wool abolished, uh, with the end mm -hmm. of, of, of world war one. And as you sort of put that, that this group sort of not his, his Heinrich, the 13th has been kind of ostracized from the rest of his family. There's, you know, quotes that he's a confused old man who's fallen prey to conspiracy theories and stuff. But, but this Reichsberger movement sort of holds that, because World War One was ended in an armistice agreement and not a peace treaty, so we're really getting into mm. like legalese uh, semantics here. That because yeah, yeah, because the German Nazi German government was ended in an armistice agreement and not a peace treaty. That that mm. therefore mm. the German government that has gone on from 1945 onward. Is an actual legitimate, and so that's that's the the, the similarities in 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 many ways to the sovereign citizens movement that you see here mm. in the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah. But so you you have that kind of flavor to it. You have the the beliefs in a sort of secret deep state cabal that you know many people in the right in the United States feel is still secretly controlling. The U.S. government, they feel that the German government is sort of run by a same sort of shadowy cabal that's beholden to the allies, you know, the U.S., the U.K., mm -hmm. and, 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 and France, which always sort of leads itself to sort of anti-Semitic, um, uh, undertones. And, and it's something that I think over COVID, over the COVID lockdowns threw gasoline onto this movement is, you know, the sort of that you have this sovereign citizen movement that, you know, the government can't tell me what to do, can't, can't exact strict population controls in the way that most of Europe, much of Europe saw during COVID that it really just, just takes off, you know, and now you have blends of the sort of new age mysticism and stuff that, that, that you see in, in a lot of QAnon, mm. um, 
rhetoric today. I think I read in in the background to this, I read that one of the members might have been that that uh, former um, Bundestag member um, was really into uh, astrology and sort of consulted astrological charts to see what day they should mount yeah. their coup. You know, when was the most opportune time? So lots of just weird, weird, goofy stuff. And I think. The issue here that, that, that you find, and I think there's some German officials who are quoted on this way too, that it's a mistake to assume that just because these people have demonstrably just nutty ideas that they're not dangerous, you know? And I think the part oh, that, yeah. that, that makes them dangerous is when you have former police and military officials who, you know, yeah. Germany has much stricter gun laws than the United States. So like you have to sort of, um, hoard weapons that you're able to get from your military service mm. rather than just going out, you know, mm. to a Walmart and just buying them as you would yeah. hear. Um, yeah. That's that, that you have people who are, who are experienced in the workings of the German security services and are familiar with military tactics that that's what really makes us dangerous. So yeah, so it's, it's a mistake to sort of write these people off as, as, as kooks just because their views are kooky. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's, you know, a lot of the talk around this is like, could they have been successful in, in overthrowing the German government? I think the sort of wide understanding is that they, they, they wouldn't have been successful, but you know, could they have attacked the Reichstag building and killed the whole bunch of people? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's, oh, that's yeah. more yeah. the threat yeah. rather than that you would have this, sort of nutty right-wing regime in charge of the German state now, but they, they could mm. still kill a whole mm. bunch of people and, and cause a lot of yeah. damage. It'd be very disruptive too. have an ongoing campaign. Yeah, it, it sort of feels similar. Yeah, it feels similar to a lot of like the sort of apocalyptic sort of cult movements that we had in the 90s, you know, mm. thinking about the Amish Rikyo oh, yeah. group that set off nerve gas on the Tokyo subway or, you know, some of the... Um, the 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 Jonestown debacle it, it feels similar to that in that kind of a kind of a regard but now it's it's fused with these sort of old deeply held political grudges that have existed for for decades or even centuries you know in the case of this Heinrich the Thirteenth is something else that I, I noticed so his his Prince Heinrich's uh, hunting lodge in uh Thuringia the sort of an ancestral sort of family oh, yes. talk about real Bond villain layer yeah yeah I mean that's another <laughs> thing it has this like sort of spooky Eastern European kind yeah. of vibe to it you know it looked really great actually I'd, I'd love to go one winter just to experience yeah, that poke around but so this this hunting lodge which is sort of like the unofficial like headquarters for this for this group as they met you know to yeah. to, to to plan this coup so Heinrich lost control of it this man is up in his 70s now, right? So he's been mm. around. So the family lost control of this hunting estate when the East Germans confiscated it and turned it into a youth hostel. And then in after reunification, Heinrich had to buy his own family's estate back from the new German government, which I read that. It, it reminded me of something. I think it was in our last episode that we were talking about with the Russians and how at the end of the Cold War, we really should have had a Marshall Plan for the former Soviet space. Mm, mm. And our failure to do that, we're sort of reaping that now. Yeah. You have this huge swath of Eurasia that culturally, financially, was just sort of screwed over by the fall of the Soviet Union and were not brought back up to the standards that the rest of mm. the transatlantic world was since yeah. from you know the end of World War II. And I think this is a very small example of that, you know, that like, yeah, this man had to pay back for his own estate that was, that was seized by the East German yeah. government. You think like, no, you shouldn't, that would be radicalizing for anybody, you know? And it's just these little kind of, there's just these little kind of like indignities that, that build up over time that you have someone who falls into this kind of a weird, dangerous ideology. Yeah, and it wasn't the only property either, because the costly legal troubles that he had was about trying to get back all the family properties that had been taken by the um, communists. Um, and, and that's why he blamed the German government. So, yeah, I think you're right. It is that sort of like, there's always some sort of trigger point, isn't there? 
actually Heinrich, I think, fits a familiar profile uh, for me of someone who ends up getting sucked into extremism. So, you know, he's got troubles in business and family because he has a very sick daughter. And he's been having, obviously, troubles with work. And then, you know, and obviously money troubles because of these lawsuits. And then he has, an, it, it seems like he has an inflated sense of self because of this aristocratic kind of background. Right. And obviously I'm speculating there, but I, I believe that seems to be the case just judging by his actions. And it's sort of that inflated sense of self having a kind of collision with a less than satisfactory reality. And now he's, he's in his later age, and I suspect he's probably looking at his legacy and wanting to leave a mark and achieve this sort of imagined destiny of becoming the aristocratic ruler of Germany and restoring his family name to glory once again. And I think these little narratives, everybody's sort of the hero of their own story, aren't they? And I find right. like with a lot of these people get sucked into extremism, whether is Islamic extremism or far-right extremism. You know, they, they sort of like with Islamic extremists in particular, they talk a lot about mysticism. And you mentioned like with the mystical beliefs with the um, with these far-right groups. I yeah. think far-right groups also believe in mysticism. And it was the the Nazis during World War II subscribed to something called the Thule Society, which was run by a lady called... Um, Helena Bravatsky, I believe, um, and um, and they believed all sorts of strange things. But the Nazis, so their ideology was sort of that they were this sort of superior race, and they they kind of went around the world. Yeah, they were up out, way out in the Himalayas and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were trying to find evidence of their of them being the superior race and stuff, and that's where Indiana Jones gets his inspiration from. So, yeah, that whole thing to the mysticism, I find really fascinating and and how it leads to sort of this self-delusion and then and, and how it's sort of like this safety net for when life isn't really working out right and you kind of fall into this trap and i think he's f- fell into it perfectly and obviously everybody else has got their own kind of equivalent of this right. i think and it, it, I, I found that really fascinating i think again to your point about you know these small personal mm. dignities that 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 make one vulnerable mm. to radical political ideologies you think you know COVID was a vehicle mm. for these small personal indignities on a massive scale for hundreds of millions of people. Either, you know, like your business went under or you, you know, mm. lost a year's plus worth of schooling, you know, that you were stuck in your house, that you missed major family milestones, yeah. weddings, funerals, you know, holidays, all kinds of stuff that we are, that people endured over the last few years, you know, each one of yeah. those yeah. is those small personal indignities that, that can very easily radicalize someone to sort of fall down the path mm. that you get to the point where like, yeah, we got to stockpile a bunch of weapons and we got to raid Berlin and kill a bunch of people, you know, or we have to march on the Capitol building and, and, you know, install Donald Trump as God Emperor. Mm. It's the same mm. kind of these small personal trigger points that put person down that path and that's why i think you see so much of this after after COVID. it was just a vehicle for for just kicking people in very in very unique ways yeah that makes sense it does yeah i mean i i know people personally have lost a lot of things during covid and they've coped with it pretty well um but if you know yeah if if they were a different kind of person i mean like i i when i think about my own time as a conspiracy theorist uh-huh. i mean like the i got sort of sucked into it at a time where i was not overly happy with myself i was not happy with my sort of day-to-day situation i was quite frustrated about my ambitions with film um meeting my kind of experience at university right. um and i just and i was and then the iraq war happened and i was quite sort of um upset about that so i was quite sort of you know there's a lot of little things that were adding up and then suddenly when these sort of conspiracy theories kind of they became quite attractive and stuff and um and i kind of got sucked down that kind of rabbit hole for a few years and and thankfully i kind of thankfully partly it was my dissertation and a few other things that kind of got me out of that way of thinking yeah and but I, I always sometimes dread to think, and this is where fiction is quite useful. I sometimes dread to think where my life could have gone had I not got out of that, because like some of the people I knew then are still very much influenced by that way of thinking. Um, and it's almost as if certain aspects of their life has just stopped, um, and they're pretty much as they were when I knew them, but just obviously a lot older now. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's just sort of quite. 
um I don't know. It's depressing and it's sort of a bit sort of crazy, really. And I think and somebody once said years ago, I can't remember if it was on my podcast or one I listened to because I've got to that point now where these things are blurring into each other a little bit. But somebody once said that like extremism, terrorism is a partly a mental health issue. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I was reading John Douglas's book, Mindhunter, when he talked about serial killers, he made a similar point that a lot of these serial killers who sort of turn to violence is usually early life experience that leads them down that path. And we've seen it with mass shootings too a lot of the mass shooters were victims of bullying they were dissatisfied their life they weren't really achieving academically and they felt kind of isolated now none of this excuses that behavior because there's a lot of people who go through those experiences and don't end up killing right. lots of people i went through some of those experiences and so far i've not managed to kill anybody and i'm trying to keep it that um you know <laughs> killed a few uh, flies and spiders but not any people but um you know so it, it's it's there is an interesting angle where mental health does cross over into this and trying to identify these things i mean i've met men a bit like this heinrich he kind of when i was reading about him he reminds me of people i met um i used to be i used to do clay pigeon shooting with my dad and my dad um had a lot of sort of it was much more conservative than myself in his views and he had a lot of friends who were even more conservative than him and some of them were even linked to um british aristocracy and things like that and someone was reading about heinrich he just felt like these sort of tweed yeah. you know and he was dressed yeah. in tweed too but these kind of guys in england who dressed in tweed usually with red trousers or something who sort of like nigel farage or something like that and they just sort of um tend to have these sort of strange kind of far-right or anti-government views that when you dig further into it usually link to um far-right ideology and stuff like that because the interesting thing with the far-right now it's not just about race a lot of the defining a lot of the thing that brings all the sort of broad church the far-right together is actually this sort of anti-government conspiracies these right. days and um much more than the racial angle which i only found out um in an interview i did last year and that was a bit of an eye-opener but it makes sense that's how then you end up with covid conspiracists joining up with um you know with the QAnon people with then you know proper diehard neo-nazis right. they all sort of, sort of come together in this sort of weird uneasy reliance but they all um you know don't believe in the government that represents them and um and they want to change things and um the other interesting thing actually sorry i'm banging on a bit now but um with the russia connection a lot of far-right groups have a bit of a for lack of a better phrase a bit of a hard-on for russia because uh, because russia kind of presents itself these days um at least to the far right um it presents itself as a kind of a savior of white of the white christian world and a yeah. force against globalization right. american hegemony and progressive values which obviously have been dubbed wokeism and yeah so many members right. of the far right do love to bang on about wokeism um and claim that wokeism is eroding traditional values so yeah there's a lot of really interesting ideology that needs to be tackled along with the mental health issues with that as well so yeah yeah i think what what is what's really concerning for the germans and i i don't think the germans are are unique in this and i'll yeah. get to that yeah. in a second but what what's really concerning for the Germans are the extent to which their active duty special forces mm. seem to be compromised by these beliefs. I mean, yes. so a few of them, like there was one, uh, Rudiger von P. And so the reason the, the, the Germans in these statements, they have very strict privacy laws. So I guess they yeah. don't put out the last name to some of these people. Right. So, but he was a former Lieutenant Colonel and commander of an elite parachute regiment who was like, sort of the head of the military arm of this conspiracy theory. Um, there's a few others who had a background in, in, in special forces. Uh, I think they raided, uh, the Germans raided a military base, yeah. part of these sweeps, um, were armed for being stockpiled, uh, illegally. I mean, a few years ago, there was also the stories that they, uh, the Germans had to shut down, um, a whole company of their, uh, KSK, like the German Delta Force. Um, had to shut down a whole company because these far right views were just so prevalent amongst that company. That's really concerning. I mean, yeah, you can see that, you know, people, people leave the military. They can't quite cut it out in the civilian world. You know, they sort of fall prey to these loony beliefs, but that you would be still in the service and believe these things and be willing to use your training and your equipment against the state. That's concerning. And, and, I mean, I know that is not 
just like that in, in, in Germany. There's definitely, I don't know how prevalent they are, but there's definitely elements of that within, uh, special forces, elite military communities here in the U S and probably in the UK too. Oh, massively. Yeah. Massively. The man who shot bin Laden, I think. Yes. Sort of pray to that a little yeah. bit. Um, and then many, many people on Twitter and the kind of, um, the, the circles that we're a part of the, the kind of have these strange views, um, you know, and, and usually, yeah, there are, and the interesting thing as well is it tends to link in with libertarianism, I've noticed. Yes. Um, and it's sort of, there's this sort of anti-government, uh, sort of tendency. And I think, and I'm trying to work, I've been again, speculating on why is it, it seems to be these kind of people. And I'm trying to work that out. But I mean, one of the, one of the trails I thought I've had, and people feel free to dismiss this, but I think some of these people who end up in special forces, when they start out, they may have a bit of a black and white view about things, mm-hmm. but the world is very grey or multicoloured, if you want to be positive about it. I see it in shades of grey, but but it is, you know, it, it's a very complicated world. There's a lot of contradictions in societies um, and in the world in general, and especially geopolitics. And so when your job is to kind of go in and be the enforcement for right. your government, and then you start to see all the hypocrisy and bad decisions that politicians make and stuff like that, you become bitter. And I remember speaking with a, a police officer off the record for some research I was doing, and he was saying to me how he's become a libertarian because of his job in the police, because he's fed up of seeing um incompetence at such a high level and still succeeding and making yeah. terrible decisions and um and i just find that really interesting and um you know and you mentioned these plots with the ksk and these be i've got a whole list here's loads of plots that have been involving ex-military in germany that range from the year 2000 to 2020 and one of the interesting ones um from 2018 involving a group called the nsu the national socialist underground um they were basically they um, had a targeted campaign of bombings and shootings from 2000 to 2007 which mainly killed turkish migrants but they were also they were made up of ex-police and military um but mainly it was three people were responsible for the terrorism Mm -hmm. but then there were an extra 150 members of the group but something went on with this because the case in 2018 when the german government was investigating the nsu formally they classified what they found for 120 years um, and it does make you wonder what did they find that led them to classifying it for such a long I'm period sure. of time. Sure. And a lot of members of the German public believe that the only reason the NSU wasn't as successful as other terrorist groups is that they didn't have um, access to the German intelligence services and getting any support from them, which mm. is a positive, I guess. Yeah. But um, but something was discovered that's led to this classification that's going to last. Wait, I'll, I'll never find out. We'll never find out unless somebody leaks it. What was found? Yeah. But I mean, like this, and it's the thing with the elite KSK, as you're mentioning. I mean, like, yeah, there was that plot. There was another plot in 2018 to 2020 where they erect, um, sorry, erected, sorry, they arrested active members uh, and retired members of the KSK for stealing weapons and ammunition. But they also found that they were storing Nazi uniforms and memorabilia. Right. Um, and, and apparently they were part of this underground neo-Nazi network, which I'd never heard of until today, called the Hannibal Network. Have you heard of the Hannibal Network? And it involves former... I've read about that before. It's yeah. very, it's very specific. Yeah, and it, it is really interesting. And it's not about cannibalism, but it's about far-right ideology. And it links um, former soldiers, judges, and police officers from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And with the, the plot that was uncovered recently... It was Germany, Italy, and Austria were the countries that um, had people yeah. involved in the plot. So, and and with these always other plots we talked about, they were all preparing for this day X, which is sort of this day where they will take on the government and, in their hopes, succeed. So, yeah, it's really fascinating, and there is a problem with um, active and former special forces members in in certainly in Germany. Um, and a little bit of it, certainly, from what I've seen online on Twitter right. in the states too, and probably the UK. Yeah, and I think if there's if 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 there's a positive to this, it's it's the willingness of the German government to do something about this problem to mm. to to, mm. to stop these people, you know, before they attack the Reichstag building, you know, not not chasing them down after they've killed several members of Parliament, you know, 
Um, and, you know, maybe that's, maybe, you know, we have this long list of, of issues of far right ideologies inside German special forces. Maybe the only reason we have that list rather than that list being of mm-hmm. U.S. special forces is because the Germans are, are dealing with it. You know, um, I mean, they certainly have a history which would allow them, which would force them to take this more seriously than, than most. Well, yeah, and and supposedly in German society, there there's been a lot of effort to confront Nazi ideology within yes. their education system, and and Germany sometimes is held up as an example to us all. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not so convinced that Germany is an example to us all sometimes, but um, but uh, yeah, it 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 it's definitely not succeeding in certain areas, and it's um, I don't know, it's an, it's a very there's a lot of there's a lot of complexities. This that's yeah, it, you know, it's a multi-pronged thing to unpack it all. As we said earlier, it's mental health, yeah. it's um, ideology, um, and it, it's all the sort of things that we're all dealing with with misinformation and extremism on the internet on an international scale, isn't it? And it's and I don't really know what the. I wish I had the billion dollar answer. I think there's a blind spot between the elites of a society, be it you know people who are in the U.S., okay, in in Washington, in New York, in the yeah. Northeast people in London, people in Berlin versus everyone else, you know, out in the quote unquote provinces, you know, for lack of a better word, in 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 their understanding of what's possible in their society. You know, like you see like, you know, a lot of people, yeah, elite people in the US or in the UK or Germany would think, oh, you, like, no, we're never going to have like a civil war or big, massive social mm-hmm. unrest to the point that the state would collapse but you know, you go outside into the into the provinces again, and it's it's very real and possible for it. It's seen as something that's possible for those people. I mean, I remember someone in 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 my hometown. Which I'm from, you know, rural New Jersey, which isn't as far out there as you know. It's still pretty suburban, but anyway. But I mean, I remember having a conversation with a with a woman years ago. I mean, b- long before COVID and and Donald Trump. This is still when Obama was in office, and her saying like, "Oh, we're going to have a civil war in this country. Like, just you wait and see." Mm. I remember saying, and I, mm. I I still believe this to a sense, but like, I, I said, Americans love Netflix and indoor plumbing way too much to have an actual civil war, you know. Um, and I still believe that, but I think there's 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 something between you know everyone holding hands and seeing Kumbaya and, you know, like the battle of Antietam. And I think mm. something that is mm. probably more likely is something that's similar to like the Irish troubles in the seventies, you know, mm. it's a pervasive mm. level of political violence that's out in the open and, and accepted by a large segment of society in a way that traditionally we haven't seen. I think that's, probably yeah. more what you're looking at than like an actual drawn out civil war. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and here's another maybe controversial view. So, uh, uh, we'll probably get a one star review because of this, <laughs> but, uh, um, the war in Ukraine, I think the looking people looking at the guerrilla tactics yeah. that have successfully taken on the quote unquote almighty Russian army that really is a bit clapped out is probably more the reasons why they're success. But, They've done so well with, you know, with small arms effectively and now with rockets and things. So it might make some people, especially in the States, maybe think, well, gee, we could take on the federal government. (laughs) And and that worries me a little bit, Um, especially also in the early days of the war where suddenly people were sharing Molotov cocktail recipes and tactics and how to strip an AK-47. Some of this stuff's quite easy to find on YouTube. But there were some one or two things like there were one or two like bomb making recipes that were floating around quite openly on Twitter. Um, and I just, I do wonder whether some people might look at that conflict and, and use it as a bit of an inspiration to yes. take on the government and also whether we'll have another sort of Timothy McVeigh kind of thing where, um, some individual, especially in the States will target, you know, a, a government building again. And it's just, it does feel like there is a sense sometimes of it couldn't happen here. And there's a lot of that in Western society, I think, and in cities too, like we feel, what I feel like sometimes living in a city, and I think it's where COVID is quite interesting, is sometimes we feel a bit divorced of nature, maybe even a bit superior to nature. Yeah. We're not affected by nature. But believe you and me, 
nature's much more in control of things than we are. But we can delude ourselves into thinking otherwise right. because we don't see the day-to-day reality of it until it hits you. Um, and I think a lot of people, COVID was a real shock to the system, partly because it just shook their this you know maybe slightly narrow view of existence maybe um it's yeah so interesting one all that yeah well here's 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 another i know we're sort of getting up there in mm. in, in time but here's here's another controversial statement that i'll i'll throw yeah. out there another one star review coming out <laughs> that yeah that i think i think there's an argument to be made that an issue with the January 6th attacks here in the US was that not enough people died. Mm. And that's a very sort of shocking yeah, thing yeah. to say. Yeah. But that's not to say that 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 people should have died. Yeah. But that we won't take the threat of the far right and their ideology in this country seriously mm. until they kill a whole bunch of people. Mm. We do not take the threat of Islamic extremism seriously. Mm. Until 9-11. Yeah. yeah. They had to kill a whole bunch of people until we finally got it and said, okay, we're going to do something about this. And that's just the nature of our society. You know, like we don't put up a traffic light mm. until there's a huge accident that mm. kills a whole bunch of people. Mm. You know, it's the same thing that, that, that if, if, you know, God forbid in the alternate universe mm. where a dozen or so members of Congress were caught by that mob and, you know, lynched on television. Oh, yeah. God, can you imagine that? Yeah. Our approach to Trumpism, to the MAGA far right, would be very different today. Yeah. Well, people still... And again, another one-star review comment coming up, but... It's the theme of the day. Um, the other problem is people still treat MAGA as just a conservative movement and not an extremist mm-hmm. movement. Now, conservatism, as far as I'm concerned... It's not MAGA. Yeah, it's not MAGA. It's about, like, you know, it's, it's about sort of reducing the size of government, government spending, yada, yada, yada. Taxation. You know, taxation, yeah. stuff like that. It's not about, you know, storming the Capitol building. It's not about denying elections. It's not about, you know, no. the horrific treatment of, of migrants at the Mexican border and stuff like that. You know, MAGA is not a genuine political movement. It's an extremist movement that kind of has managed to dress itself up. And I think the media have not been able to cope with with that. I think the problem is sometimes the, and I hate saying it's because I'm like but sometimes the mainstream media has not been able to cope with the reality of the MAGA movement. They kind of want to dress it up as a legitimate political thing. Oh, it's just what Republicans believe. It's not as simple as that. Because to do so would be rude. Yeah. To treat these people of how they actually are would be considered rude. Yeah. And that's why. And they don't want to be called. No. They're terrified. The mainstream media in this country is is terrified of being uh, seen as as skewed yeah. or biased yeah. against the right. Yeah. And so they don't call it out to the extent that they should, that they would Islamic extremism yeah. because it's rude. Yeah, exactly. So it's... Yeah, that's a big that's a big issue to deal with too, and um, and whilst at the same time, journalists are also very happy to then bring out big exposés to undermine the legitimacy of government sometimes too. So it's a really yeah. interesting kind of skewed way of working because when um just thinking about like how the snowden coverage went the snowden coverage did a lot of damage to international relations for many years as did the mm-hmm. um the wikileaks uh pentagon not pentagon papers sorry the uh state department emails um what was that called? yeah the cables the cables the, that's the, the, the cable cable gate cable, cable gate, gate that's it? it cable gate did yes. so much damage to international relations yet some journalists were just sharing that with pure glee um, and I have to mm-hmm. wonder sometimes, why is it when there's a whistleblower who exposes something like that, that people seem to be obs- share it with a certain level of glee and not think about some of the damage it's doing? Now, there is a counter-argument to that, is that maybe you know, the intelligence services shouldn't be doing things like this that could potentially um, backfire and blow up in their face. I get that. But um, there just does seem to be a bit of a strange... Um, I don't know. I just find there's a certain level of glee that I find a bit unhealthy sometimes in the reporting of whistleblower mm-hmm. cases that people don't think about the consequences of where that goes. Um, yeah. Now, some could argue, well, journalists shouldn't have to worry about the consequences of the thing. That's, you, know, you just put the information out there. If that were the case, then why aren't they reporting MAGA in the same way? That's my problem. Yeah, and it's not you're, not... you're not reporting in a vacuum. I mean, you're you're reporting... In the real world, mm. you know, like yeah. it's not a hypothetical yeah. sandbox situation, you know, like your, your, your words and your actions have consequences regardless of, 
of of how you might mean them to be. Yeah, yeah. And I struggle with this in fiction, actually. I mean, like, there's been a few projects over the years I've tried to develop that either with writers or on my own, where they kind of just gone into places that you know end up in like like 24 territory which to me i just like yeah sorry it's just like this is not me and you know i've talked about this before like it's interesting with espionage it can get a bit racist if you're not careful you've got to navigate it really carefully because yes you know because it's about a foreign nation you know in a sense spying against your nation and and like you just got to navigate that so carefully because it can end up being quite right wing and and you know, and I, I'm I love travel. I love meeting other people from other cultures. I find that a great part of existence. Um, but at the same time, I'm drawn to the intrigue and, and of espionage, and uh, and I just find that I don't know. I want to know a bit more about the behind the curtain. <laughs> you know what I mean, and that, that's probably why I started yes. this podcast. Really. Um, so one has to think about your words and the scenarios you create do have real world consequences. And I think like, um, and just in this day and age, making a film where your protagonist just tortures people for information. To me, that's lazy writing. Yes. 2024 was used as during, during the whole, during the Bush administration, the torture scandal, 24 was used as a reason of why the CIA should do it. Oh yeah. It was like, yeah. well, what if it's like a scene in 24 and like, there's a, there's a nuclear bomb in Los Angeles is going to go off in an hour. Like, would you not torture the guy? Yeah. Like, that's not yeah. real fucking no. life. That's a made up network TV show. And yet you're basing policy off of yeah. this. Young soldiers look to Jack Bauer as a hero during the Iraq war. Sometimes it yeah. led to Abu Ghraib yeah. and things. And, um, yeah. you know, and so it was Tom Parker. I was talking to who, who um, wrote a book about avoiding the terrorist trap and, um, and he he mentioned that apparently the producers of Twenty Four were approached by the military, um, and I think um, Amnesty International to kind of tone it down a bit and make them the producers aware of the consequences of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I and I can't remember later seasons of Twenty Four whether they did or did not tone it down. But I remember one of the producers who went on to do Homeland brought in in series two a uh, um, character stabbing Brody right through the hand during an interrogation. So I don't think he learned his lesson, did he? <laughs> I can't remember which writer or producer that was, but you know, um, yeah, it's just I don't know, it's not great. So um, this would be a good, it would be a good episode just to do a deep dive at some point into like the ethics of writing mm. in the spy genre, yeah. you know, and and as knowing that the audience that this is the the most in depth look at international. Mm relations and and mm. military strategy that most people get mm. so you know how do you present that world to them mm. in a way that's mm. not putting the wrong ideas in their head yeah yeah and there's a lot of um there's a lot of what i call special forces porn that dominates the spy yes. genre these days um oh, yes. and, and it uh, it doesn't impress me <laughs> I'll put it that way. No. Um, and, and it's it, lazy it, too. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm going to lose some followers for this. Yeah. It's lazy. Mm. <laughs> Today is a one-star review episode. So. <laughs> we're just burning. <laughs> we're beach the boats yeah. and we're just torching them all. <laughs> what was it Ramius and Hunt for October said? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, dude, you got to burn yes. the boats behind you or the bridges behind you or something. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but we're going to service in Havana, and it's all going to be great. And we're going to. Oh dear, I suppose we probably should look a bit at COVID. Uh, we we should move on to another cheery subject. Yeah, yeah. COVID has definitely not disappeared, and so there's been some reports in the UK just this week where um, UK health experts, based at a group called Airfinity Global Health Intelligence. And they're using modeling and they've estimated that about 9,000 people a day are dying in China due to COVID-19, which is very dramatic. When I first read that, quite frankly, I was a bit floored by that number. Um, And that goes dramatically against official Chinese government figures who claim they only have several thousand cases of COVID a day, let alone deaths. They don't really, they don't say they have that many deaths at all anymore. So questions now being raised about how bad China's death toll is and how bad it will get. Um, China has just recently lifted international travel restrictions, um, which has led to many world governments uh, changing their policies for international travelers from China uh, coming into their borders. And um, 
in China has sort of said that this is sort of politically motivated. Um, whilst the you know the World Health Organization said that um, that they that they neither endorse nor condemn travel restrictions, but they do understand that in the absence of comprehensive information from China, it's understandable that countries around the world are acting in the ways that they believe may protect their populations. One interesting thing with the uh, travel is that the US government is now considering testing wastewater samples taken from international aircraft to track COVID variants uh, and surges from China. So I, I was getting January 2020 vibes because I remember just before COVID, um, it was a bit of a, a rumor. And if you're on Twitter paying attention, it was a, a lot of unsubstantiated videos and articles and things were coming out on Twitter. I remember seeing pictures of people, you know, on stretches outside hospitals, on ventilators and all sorts of stuff. Um and the main culprit to all this thing was a lack of transparency by the Chinese government. And um, obviously right. then led a lot of – and there was a lot of sort of um, – I think in the in the UK and Europe, they probably thought, oh, it's going to probably be a bit like SARS where it will be bad but not terrible. I don't think anybody foresaw right. COVID um, going quite the way it did other than the US intelligence services who warned the government about it. And I think Joe Public, myself included, did think that ah, it's probably going to be a bit like SARS or swine flu. It'll be, you know, it will affect some people, but it won't be something that will lead to lockdowns yeah. and stuff. So when I read about the the reports that there might be nine thousand deaths a day and China's playing it down, it just felt like oh, we're back in January twenty twenty again. Um, so Matt, I don't know what your thoughts on this situation is. It's a strange sort of situation in which to find ourselves. I mean, I, I, I remember the same thing you were talking about, like the early days of COVID January, 2020, where there were, I think I saw stuff that like purported to be like thermal imaging of sections of, of Chinese cities. They'd be looking at these heat blooms from basically crematoriums yes, and trying to imply yeah. that, oh yeah, scores of people are dying and they're burning all the bodies. Mm. You know, a, a lot of that probably was not true. Mm. Um, but I think it just speaks to how hard it is to hold a country like China to account mm. for this surge or other variants of COVID that will come out mm. of this surge. Mm. Um, not in a way that, you know, they need to be held account because it's, it's, it's their fault, but like we need to know what's happening yeah. because what happens there eventually comes back yeah. comes back here in yeah. the same way it did, you know, three years ago. Mm. The strategy to sort of sample wastewater off of planes from China to to track emerging variants, that seems really smart to me. Yeah. And I think is probably the best way yeah. to get the most accurate data out of China that you will be I mean, I wouldn't trust anything that the Chinese say mm. publicly. Mm. It's just, I think that's just useless. Um, and I, yeah. So tracking these variants through wastewater from aircraft seems really smart to me. And I think that's something that should not just be done by the U S but I think the whole Western Alliance, so to speak, sort of should have a joint effort in, in, in tracking that. Um, I think we're in, I think we're still in a bit of it, you know, three years on, from the start of COVID, I think we are in a significantly different place from mm. where the Chinese are now. Mm. I mean, so they're like the Sinopharm vaccine that China developed pretty quickly. I mean, they had it, I think, substantially earlier than, mm. than we had our, our first vaccines. They're not mRNA. So, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't want to be an epidemiologist. <laughs> I don't know all the details about this mm. stuff. But their uh, efficacy of the Chinese vaccines are not nearly as good as mm. ours. And mm. I think I read somewhere that they have 93% of Chinese citizens are are vaccinated, which is something. I don't think they're boosted to the extent no. that no. much of the US and, and, and Europe are. Um, of course, you know, I think we've, uh, the Biden administration has approached the Chinese in the past about, you know, like, do you want our help with the mRNA vaccines? And the Chinese are like, no. Which surprises me that, you know, three years on from this, like they haven't been able to steal yeah. the Moderna yeah. formula, yeah. you know, yeah. and just maybe it's the travel restrictions. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's affected Chinese maybe. espionage. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think what's so, but it's such a strange mm. turn from China's zero COVID policy yeah. that, that insane stuff that you would see during those lockdowns, like they were 
welding people inside their apartments. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think it's just to me seeing how the reaction that we had over here to is not even a yeah. lockdown compared no. to what you guys had in Europe. Yeah. It doesn't even comply. And I mean, I would sort of defend that to an extent that, like our culture here, like, hey, you don't have you don't have the manpower to implement that kind of lock. You don't have the central governmental control in this country mm-hmm. to do so. Like the federal government just doesn't have the authority to do it. But also, I mean, like you would have in like Italy, some of those you know, first lockdowns, like if you set foot outside of your house, very shortly thereafter, there was a cop in your face saying, where are you going? And you better have a good answer for them. You know, like you couldn't, you can't, you couldn't do that here. People just wouldn't tolerate it. The police wouldn't follow those orders. You know, it's just, it's, it's for better or for worse, that sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, handle it yourself. Mm -hmm. Rugged individualism is such an ingrained part of our society on the right and the left mm. that y- you just, you can't lock the country down to the extent that even that you guys had over in, 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 in Europe. But I, yeah, but the UK, it was just so inconsistent um, of who, right. of who they would enforce it for and against. Then obviously later on, it turned out our very prime minister was flouting the rules and having parties and god knows what so it's like you know somebody was enjoying missing funerals yeah yeah. i mean that's just unconscionable and just disgusting how that went but i think i mean china's zero COVID policy to me it was never about preventing chinese citizens from Mm. getting sick Mm. it was about demonstrating that the chinese communist party and now xi jinping because the two are functionally inseparable or have a better way of controlling this disease mm. than the decadent West. Yeah. You know, it's about digging in your feet and being like, we are not going to have this explosion of this virus. Mm. And if I have to physically weld people inside their apartments, like that's what we're going to do to prevent it because the Chinese communist party cannot be proven to be wrong or, or dysfunctional mm. in some kind of way. Like we can't mm. have that display, mm. which is why you can't trust any data that comes out of China now that they've backed away from that, you know? And I think something that's also really interesting now that they've, I mean, while those protests and stuff were happening in China last month Mm. and into November, it sort of seemed to me like, could, could the communist party find a way to reverse their policy in a way that doesn't look like they're reversing their policy Mm. in a way that they're not admitting fault, Mm. you know, could they find a way to do that? One question I had yeah. was: Was the Communist Party concerned about the rise in civil disobedience related to COVID zero policy? Were they scared of an Arab Spring style yes. takeover? Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's also something really interesting now that you had the Chinese have this taste of like, oh, we can voice our discontent and affect policy change. Yeah. And I think that was another part of, of of the Communist Party's reluctance to sort of switch policies. If we give them this one win, mm. if we show that in the society you can voice discontent mm. at the government mm. and affect change, mm. what does that prove for 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 other issues? You know, um, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I don't. I think we have in the U.S. and Europe have much greater protections from our vaccines and just from the herd immunity. Mm. So many people have had it, you know, mm. for better or for worse. Mm. Yeah. A million Americans are dead, you know, I mean, and we still haven't grappled with that. No. I had issues. It was tough for me in 2020 on September 11th, you know, I was in my apartment mm. and uh, still pretty, you know, fairly locked down as we went back into the fall, things sort of picked up again, but it was hard for me to, I think we were at that point. I remember we were losing around a thousand people a day. Yeah. Maybe, maybe more. It was like a nine 11 a day. It wasn't, it was terrible. It was right. Just right. Like, right. Know. It was hard. And I yeah. remember I had, I was still in grad school then and, and we were talking during class and I said, it was hard for me to watch the coverage mm. in New York and the Pentagon, mm. this sort of yearly ritual stopping to remember the 3000 people killed on nine 11 when every three days you have the same thing. Yeah. And it's not, I think, I mean, if it was an Ebola outbreak and mm. you could see people bleeding out of their eyes and their ears and stuff, we might have a different sort of approach mm. to it. But because COVID was such a, the, the, it was such 
an invisible kind of catastrophe. You know, whereas 9-11 was, it was planes flying into buildings and those buildings collapsing and people running through the streets covered in blood and dust. It was hyper visual. And we understood that in a way that I think it's hard for us to wrap our brains around the scale Mm. of the death that COVID brought just because it's not Mm. vividly in front of our faces. It's a bit, I think this is the global warming issue too. It's like, or climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if it's an action by a person or group of persons, um, or a country, it's very easy to kind of do something about it. Whilst if it's sort of something a bit more obscure, like nature, um, uh, and requires people to think about it, I think it just doesn't have the same impact, does it? Um, and and I think that's that's going to be humanity's downfall because, like with the climate change yeah. situation, which is only but getting worse, and we'll probably have more pandemics. I don't think COVID's the first pandemic that we're going to experience in our lifetime. Um, yeah, and being really morbid about it, I fear when I'm an old age pensioner, which is a good few years away yet, but um, <laughs> but but one, you know, it might be the next pandemic that will do me in. I don't know. I've been very lucky with COVID and not getting it so far. I don't know. It's if yeah. there's if there's any sort of positive that it seems like in recent in the last three years, just the technology and the capability in the West beyond what we're able to build with a vaccine is 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 truly just a miracle mm. that I don't think we as a population fully understand yet. Like our ability to sort of produce these vaccines and have them to be effective and produce them in just a couple of years in a process that should take, you know, 10 or 20 mm. is absolutely astounding. And so if there's anything in the future that we can sort of hope to 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 protect us, mm. it's 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 stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, well I think that's a good place to to wrap up our COVID chat and stuff. So uh, Matt, any, uh, what are your thoughts or hopes, dreams, desires, resolutions for the year ahead? Do you have any, any things you're hoping to do or achieve or anything like that or would like to Uh, see? (laughs) I am hoping to be personally be a lot more productive. I'm hoping to get a lot more reading and writing done than Mm -hmm. I did in, in past years. I think 2022 was, I mean, I finished grad school and I think we sort of put, I say that now as I'm, you know, looking at this article about 9,000 people dying a day in China, but I think you sort of put COVID behind us a bit. Um, I, I'm, yeah, hoping to be a lot more productive. I'm in this new half complete yeah. office. So I'm hoping to use that. Um, yeah, that's sort of what I'm, mm. I'm hoping for. What about, what about you? Yeah, similar thing. I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do an hour, uh, three days a week on this new spy project um and then um yeah i've got got a really weird ambition i don't know why but um it was based on a conversation i had with this uh guy from iceland years ago we would somehow talk about firing guns and he was shocked that as an englishman i've never fired a walther ppk Ah. and i don't know why this came into my head but i thought you know what this is the year i don't know how i'm gonna do it but um this is the year i'm gonna fire a walther ppk so Watch out, world. I'm looking to fire a wall through PPK. I hear they're pretty shit, actually. I hear they jam quite often. So, and you have to hold it in a particular way. You gotta get way. a silencer for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you gotta do it with a silencer. <laughs> exactly. So you never know. It might be a Secrets and Spies video special eventually, which I guess will be an exclusive for our YouTube followers. Um, where I finally get to shoot one of these wall through PPKs and, and then see how it jams and see how it's quite an outdated pistol, but still looks really cool. So but um yeah i think that just yeah productivity just try and uh i don't know just try and sort of stay positive all the craziness going on in the world really is the big thing and um yeah and i and i suppose the big big thing i hope that that dreadful you know the dreadful war in ukraine will come to a, a positive conclusion this year but uh yeah i'm not sure that it will but you never know you never know one's gonna it's gonna be a it's gonna be a long it's it's gonna be a long winter for them yeah um yeah yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, um, on that cheery note, I think we'll we'll wrap up. But uh, thank you again, Matt. And where can people connect with you? Where can they find out about your book and your work and things like that? Sure. So uh, I am on Twitter mm-hmm. still until the lights go out. Uh, I I just don't feel like dealing with Macedon or anything. No, so I'm, I'm still on Twitter. <laughs> um, you can you can find me on Twitter at uh, Fulton Matt. That's uh f-u-l-t-o-n-m-a-t-t uh yeah i'm there on twitter um there's a link to my website there where uh you can you know read more about um 
active measures mm-hmm. and some of the other stuff I'm, I am working on. Um, and that website there has, has, uh, links to, to, to Amazon where one can purchase aforementioned novel. Excellent. Yeah. But I think Twitter is, Twitter is the best place to find me. So at Fulton Matt on Twitter is where I am. Nice one. Well, thank you again, Matt. Happy new year to you. Best of luck with all that you want to achieve and happy new year to all our listeners. And I hope whatever it is that you're trying to do, whether it's firing a wolf or PPK, be more productive, eat more healthily or whatever, best of luck with it. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.